Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel to talk, let's keep going, Thelma and Louise, and our season one finale. Hi, everyone. Hi. I hope you enjoyed watching this life-changing phenomenon known as Thelma and Louise. I imagine you're very overwhelmed right now. Yeah. (laughs) As I was when I saw it for the first time. I remember seeing this movie for the first time and having to just sit in silence and truly, I felt as though my world had changed. I saw it in high school. For the first time. Right. On a sleepover with my two best friends. And I can't remember at this point if I think they were asleep. And I had like made my way off of the couch. And had just like been drawn in (laughs) towards the television. And was like sitting on the floor a foot away from the television. Mm -hmm. Just like watching it happen. Because I couldn't believe what was happening before my eyes. I had never seen anything like this Mm. movie. It makes me emotional just to think about it. Yeah. And you know what was really funny? This weekend while I was watching the film in preparation for this episode, I was also working on my applications for grad school. Right. Which is just a really funny coincidence because I actually, in high school, I wrote my college application essay about this movie. It's so funny. If that doesn't tell you, I've been a weird feminist movie nerd (laughs) from the very beginning. (laughs) I saw this movie for the first time last summer when you and I were doing our big like boot camp. Yes. Watching all our movies, trying to figure out season one. And I was sitting in my apartment... And I was shaking so hard and I was crying so, so, so hard. I don't think I've ever cried that hard at a movie. And I had to pause it and I just sat. Like you said, this movie just makes people sit. You just sit after this movie. So I had to pause and I was just sitting. And then in like an hour, I had to meet you for lunch. So I just had to go to lunch and I was still crying. I don't know if you remember this. I do. I was crying through most of lunch just because I physically couldn't stop. You were like, oh, did you finish? And I was like, no, I've only watched the first 15 minutes. So I went home and I finished it then. And then you and I saw it at an outdoor screening together, which was really fun. Yes. And now I've watched it for the third time this past week. But I feel like there are movies and plays that they're so absorbing that you find yourself memorizing it as you're watching it, even Mm. for the first time. It was as if I had seen it a million times before. It was as if I knew it in a past life. And I was instantly downloading it to memory immediately. Mm -hmm. So even in this third viewing, it was crazy how familiar I was with it. That's so beautiful. (laughs) But yeah, completely. Agree. That's exactly how I felt. This movie is very culturally specific to American white working class women in the South in the late 20th century. And within that, it gives space and breath for so many things that make up what it is to be a woman. There's sexuality, there's relationships, there's rape culture, there's rebellion, there's being suffocated, there's the law not helping you. Mm-hmm. And specifically, the two lead actors, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, have to handle so many different types of performances throughout this movie. They have to tap into being silly, being sexy, vulnerable, crying, rageful, confident, desperate, 
So when we get into specific details of how this film explores those specific themes, this film really is beyond the sum of its parts. It covers everything. I think something that's really emblematic of that is the fact that we had no idea what theme to discuss this movie under. Yes! At one point we had this in our Best Friends episode. At one point we were talking about doing like a crime spree episode. At one point we were going to do a rape culture episode. The fact that you can't really pin down the major theme of this movie to any of those. Mm-hmm. We just needed to give it its own episode. Yeah. Shows how wide the breadth of topics this movie covers. Right, exactly. And I think that's why I hesitate to say it's really about any one thing. It's just about women. Yeah. So Thelma and Louise was released in 1991. It was directed by Ridley Scott and written by Callie Curry. It stars Gina Davis as Thelma and Susan Sarandon as Louise. The movie received six Academy Award nominations, and it won for Best Original Screenplay for Callie Curry. But both Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis were nominated for Best Actress, Mm. which I think is amazing. Well-deserved. They should have won together like the ladies did in Soulmate. Agreed. And then also in 2016, the movie was selected for preservation in the Library of Congress, Mm. which I think is quite necessary. (laughs) And before we get into the film conversation, I just want to say that Gina Davis now is our second repeat actor on the (gasps) podcast. Yay! She was featured in episode three for The Love of the Game for her movie A League of Their Own. Yes. And what's sort of amazing is that she's now devoted this latter part of her career to uplifting stories of women in media. Mm. She has her own organization called the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, and it focuses on research-based development of positive female role models in children's entertainment. Mm. And they were one of the first organizations to do the actual really necessary statistical research that found that the ratio of men to women in film is really three to one Mm. rather than what it should be, which is one to one. Mm -hmm. So I just think the world of Gina Davis. Me too. So before we even get into the full arc of this masterpiece of a film, Mm -hmm. let's just quickly touch on the direction of the movie, which I think is spectacular. Yeah, me too. By Ridley Scott. This is my favorite aesthetic of film, Mm -hmm. of this very gritty attention to realism Mm -hmm. that, you know, the actors aren't super primped. Yeah. A lot of the film, the women are not wearing makeup. Their hair is wild and frizzy. They're sweating. You could see sweat stains on their shirts. Mm -hmm. I also am just subjectively more interested in films that are filmed on location rather than on a big studio lot. Mm -hmm. And I think the location casting in this film is just amazing. (laughs) Like the car casting as well. That 66 Thunderbird convertible, teal green. (laughs) But yeah, the production design, not only the gorgeous road scenes, but the world building of their hometown, Mm -hmm. of Thelma's house and Louise's restaurant. There is this hyper attention to realism that Mm -hmm. I really appreciate. But from two episodes ago when we talked about the fits and we talked about these extensions from realism, I sort of think the same thing is happening here that 
that, yes, it's realism, but this is a heightened theatrical poetic version of realism that the real world should aspire to be in, Mm. where people are this interesting. (laughs) And the sequence of events that happens feels very structured. I think Ridley Scott is great. Yeah. What an amazing choice for whoever matched Ridley Scott and Callie Corey. (laughs) Right. Because you get his obsession with glorious action sequences (laughs) matched with gritty reality and then the brilliant writing and attention to feminism from Callie Corey. Yeah. And he's been an ally filmmaker for a while. I mean, he has a lot of very testosterone-driven films, Mm -hmm. but... He directed Alien. He directed G.I. Jane. Yeah, I think Alien is fabulous. Yeah, he's made a bunch of films that not only feature women, but really, really respect and give space to women. Bless him. We love you, Ridley. Mm -hmm. And obviously for you and I, the star of this film is... The car. (laughs) The Grand Canyon. Christopher McDonald. (laughs) Harvey Keitel. The screenplay. (laughs) Brad Pitt. (laughs) I'm just going to name all the supporting men in this movie. Yes, the screenplay, Callie Corey. I sort of can't even talk about it seriously because I don't have the faculties or eloquence to really, really get across how perfect and important the screenplay is. So I'm just going to make jokes and stall. They need to teach this in film schools. I think they do. I think in a lot of schools they do teach it. It's impeccable. And I'll say this briefly because I certainly don't want to undermine the huge, profound success that Thelma and Louise has had over the last 30 years, but I feel like we still don't even talk about Thelma and Louise like Citizen Kane or The Godfather, Mm. right? It's the most famous feminist film of all time, Mm. but it's not the most famous film of all time. So it's still not good enough for me, considering the actual quality of this movie. I 100% agree. Like, yes, it was still this landmark, but it wasn't enough of a landmark to me. It really should be up there with these movies that, frankly, are completely about maleness and testosterone. Like, women have to love The Godfather, right? We have to, because it's just canon that it's the greatest film of all time. But I'm sorry, like, I get as much out of The Godfather as I'm sure a lot of men get out of what they would call chick flicks. You know, I have to, like, humor The Godfather when it's an incredible piece of storytelling, but just does not include anyone but straight white men. So why can't men extend the same courtesy to Thelma and Louise and say, yes, I concede this is the greatest film of all time, even though it's not for me. It's not about me. Mm Mm-hmm. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Off my soapbox. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So let's get into this story. The opening credits come up. The Western music plays as it pans across the desert and the road. And before any plot points have happened, A, we already know this is an opera. (laughs) You know, this is like a giant theatrical movie. And B, I'm already emotional. So we get those long operatic shots before the screenplay has even touched down to earth yet. Mm. Oh, it's so good. What do we learn in the first five minutes of this movie? There is an incredible attention to detail Mm -hmm. in laying the tapestry for these characters. Louise tells the girls in her restaurant not to smoke, and then she smokes right after. Thelma takes a bite out of the candy bar and then puts it back in the fridge, and then takes another bite and puts it back in the fridge. 
these two women are trying so hard to be the women they think they should be and they just can't do it. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest lesson as far as I'm concerned, that they're both making efforts to hold themselves back and they can't. They just can't. Louise has to smoke. Thelma has to take a bite of the candy bar. Mm -hmm. And for both of them, it's the first little spark that we see of rebellion. Right. And the stakes couldn't be lower. Right. But that theme of rebellion has already been established. Mm -hmm. And we're introduced to their friendship over the phone. Yeah. We know instantly that they're the best friends in the world. Hmm. The cook at Louise's restaurant knows that if Louise is on the phone, she must be talking to Thelma. <laughs> Daryl knows the same thing. If Thelma's on the phone, she must be talking to Louise. Right. And they're planning this little escape. And it's so sweet and adorable that this is the highest stakes they mm -hmm. think the film is going to be. Ooh, we're getting away for the weekend. I'm not going to tell Daryl. I love how they establish that these stakes are actually fairly high for Thelma to have this huge rebellious act mm -hmm. of not telling Daryl that she's going on this trip. They're laughing about it in the car. It really seems like a big deal. It's, it feels really empowering immediately. Yeah. That she's what? Spending two days away from her husband? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> also, did you get the feeling that Daryl is absolutely cheating on her? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not making that up, right? Well, either that or he's, you know, he's like out at a bar or like gambling or doing any number of rebellious, playful things that men are allowed to do that if he found out that she was doing would freak out. Yeah, right. So I guess his staying late Friday nights is really more a gesture of independence mm -hmm. than specifically cheating. Yes. Amazing. What else do we learn? We see both of these women packing for their trips. <laughs> Louise packs just the bare minimum of things she might need in little plastic Ziploc bags <laughs> that she carefully puts into her little suitcase. Meanwhile, Thelma <laughs> pours her entire drawer just haphazardly into her suitcase. <laughs> Louise has this tidy little hairdo. Yeah. Thelma comes out in her long skirt and her like movie star blowout yeah. and they've both got their lipstick and their big sunglasses but Thelma comes out with a fishing pole and a net and a lantern like, a lantern <laughs> and Louise is like why are you bringing all that stuff we're not gonna need it and she's she's got like two or three suitcases with her <laughs> for the weekend to me this is Thelma holding on to this life mmm She's packing her whole life into these suitcases. I never thought of it that way. Totally. And we'll see how she treats all of that stuff later on in the movie. Yeah. I have never thought of this until right now. May I make a point about some rom-coms? Oh, okay. Related to this movie? So this movie gets real, real, right? Pretty soon, it turns into a different genre of movie. The first 20 minutes implies that it is these... She's so great, but these like Nancy Myers movies, right? where these women are in beautiful white turtlenecks and they laugh together drinking wine in their beautiful kitchens. <laughs> the first 20 minutes of this movie have similar stakes to those movies mm. in that, oh, I'm going to leave my husband for the weekend. I'm going to do something rebellious. And that's the extent of the stakes in those other rom-com movies. And I think women deserve better. Women deserve higher stakes. Mm. I feel like people think of that Polaroid selfie that Thelma and Louise take. Mm -hmm. If they haven't seen this movie, they've seen that image. Right. And they can put this movie in a category with other films. Right. That the energy of that image 
carries through the entirety of the film. Absolutely. And to be fair, it is such a cute moment in this movie. But if that was the extent of the exploration of these women's lives, I'd probably be bored. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is all to say the low stakes of the first 20 minutes are so effective. Mm -hmm. Because we're either waiting for something dramatic and crime-related to happen, or... We just think this is an incredible and beautiful buddy film. Although, what's the last thing that we get in that first five minutes? We get Chekhov's gun. The gun. We get Thelma picking it up (laughs) like a wet noodle, (laughs) throwing it in her purse with her candy bars, (laughs) and then pulling it out in the car, and Louisa's like, what are you doing with that gun? (laughs) So we know at some point in this film, that gun is going to come out. Love that gun. So then, like you said, around the 15 or 20 minute mark, we enter the Silver Bullet, which already... A very telling name. Yes. Telling name. Also, if you listen carefully for the music that's playing in that scene, it's a song about a car chase. I have a similar note about the lyrics to the song played when Thelma hops in Louise's car in her bikini. The lyrics of that song is describing their situation, except the one difference is that a man is singing, which comments on the idea that this narrative has traditionally been a male one, and they don't have any women to influence how to do it. They only have male Mm -hmm. influences. The same with the song at the Roadhouse. Yeah. Like, they don't have any women to show them how to be outlaws. They only Mm. have men to show them how to be outlaws. Yes. Great song casting. (laughs) That also is just, like, subjectively one of my favorite images of the movie, of Thelma in her bikini, like, with her suitcase, (laughs) like, jumping into the getaway car. (laughs) So, 20 minutes into the movie, we're at the Silver Bullet, and suddenly what we previously thought was a buddy chick flick, Mm -hmm. we're now refocusing on these heavy themes of rape culture. Mm -hmm. Totally. We're going to meet a lot of men in the course of this film. The first we meet is Daryl, who is obviously a monster. (laughs) He is so mean to Thelma. They live in that dinky house and then he has this hilariously expensive car. Yeah, the red Corvette. (laughs) Vomitous. The pageantry of that car is there to soothe his fragile masculine (laughs) ego. Meanwhile, we spend the whole movie in this pretty okay car that Louise has that drives them through their journey. Mm -hmm. The juxtaposition between those two cars is very funny for me. Did you also notice his necklace? No. It's a gold necklace and the pendant just says number one. Love it. (laughs) Attention to detail. Callie Corey and Ridley Scott. Yes. Hilarious. So much detail. (laughs) So much character building. I love it. Amazing. So yeah. So we know Daryl is the worst. (laughs) We know that he's completely abusive towards Thelma. I don't think that the film implies that he physically abusive but Mm -hmm. he is certainly emotionally and verbally abusive yeah at one point louise even says is he your father or your husband yeah so then when we meet harlan in the silver bullet Mm -hmm. he seems like a nice alternative at first yeah to daryl thelma's on vacation guy's buying her a drink he's flirting with her he's being nice to her right louise is instantly distrustful of him but thelma has no reason to believe at this point that 
this is a man who will take advantage of her. Mm -hmm. I immediately distrust Harlan, of course. When I see Harlan's act that he puts on Mm -hmm. of flirting with them, complimenting them, buying them drinks, leading Thelma onto the dance floor, twirling her around, he's got the smarmy charm Mm -hmm. of what I think of when I hear the word chivalry. Which I just think of as the most bullshit excuse for men and women upholding the patriarchy. That he goes through the motions of being generous towards women. But all of that is such an obvious cover for the true person beneath that who will come out once they're in private. Well, this is really complicated, this conversation, and I want to make sure that there's space for our male listeners to know exactly what we're talking about, because I've had this conversation with men before, and I feel like men get very defensive about this idea of chivalry. And I I just want to address that and sort of respect that space for a second, that buying a woman a drink and being kind to her and taking her out on the dance floor, nothing is inherently bad about that. I think incels would say that, oh, we're being set up to fail. We're being sabotaged just by being nice, just by reaching out and being friendly. We're ruining this woman's life. And I just want to clarify that if Harlan was really just interested in being nice to Thelma, buying her a drink, maybe getting a kiss at the end of the night, sparking up what could possibly be a new relationship, flirting, that's all great. That is not the problem. When feminists resent chivalry, that is not what we're referring to. We're referring to the male expectation that doing all of those things is really just setting up a transaction for sex. That the expectation is I will be nice to this woman, therefore she will reward me with sex. That is the problem. That is what women hate about chivalry, is that they see it as a trade, when really being decent to a woman you've just met should live on its own terms. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really get the vibe that Harlan was predatory or evil from the beginning. I got it once I realized that he saw being kind to Thelma as his opening act towards the real moment that he wanted, which was to have sex with her, whether or not she consented. And of course, that's the dangerous element of this transaction that you're talking about. Because if Thelma doesn't hold up her end of the bargain, Right, exactly. Then Harlan is going to take it anyway. I bought you a drink. I was nice to you. What do you mean you don't want to have sex with me? That's not what we agreed to. Right. So then we have the rape scene, which is quite horrific. Very traumatizing to watch. I really appreciate all of the work that Callie Curry has done. She really covers all of the bases Mm -hmm. in terms of rape culture. Thelma says... No. She (laughs) says, let me go. She says, I don't feel good. My friend will be waiting. I'm married. She gives every excuse she might think of to make it clear to Harlan she doesn't want to have sex. Mm -hmm. Of course, a majority of the credit goes to Callie Corey, but I also want to really give credit to Ridley Scott for filming this scene in such a way that I think a lot of male filmmakers wouldn't have filmed this. It's so rough. It's so gritty. And it makes my skin crawl to even have to articulate this, but... There's nothing even vaguely romanticizing about it. Mm. And I wish I didn't even have to clarify that, but there are so many rape scenes that do, in a backwards way, subliminally romanticize rape. There is nothing romantic about this. And to have that come from a male filmmaker was very encouraging. Mm -hmm. The blood on her face is unforgettable. Mm -hmm. 
And even after the rape happens and Louise steps in, the language that's used in those moments when they're deliberating what to do, Mm -hmm. Louise says, a hundred people saw you dancing with him all night. And she says, we can't go to the police. She says, who's going to believe it? We don't live in that kind of world, Thelma. She even blames Thelma Mm -hmm. at one point. She says, if you weren't concerned about having so much fun, we wouldn't be here now. Yeah, you were dancing with him all night. Uh Uh-huh. We're already exploring this language of women dealing with not only the emotional trauma of rape, but the logistical trauma and the bureaucratic trauma of rape. Absolutely. And even before that, before Louise kills Harlan, he says, I'm just having a little fun. And I really think that's such an important line for men to pay attention to, because if this movie was from Harlan's perspective, frankly, I think that movie should be made. I think we should see a man who is so fucking entitled that he buys a woman a drink and sees nothing wrong with that transaction being fulfilled with having sex with her afterward. So when he says, I'm just having a little fun, I bet he's genuinely confused Mm -hmm. as to why Thelma is crying and why he then gets shot and killed. Because her crying, whether she's having any fun or not, is completely irrelevant to him. Her humanity, her presence even as a person, is not relevant to him. And that's the patriarchy. That's why when men get defensive about rape culture, that's what we should point them to. Like Harlan's confusion in that moment and his nerve to say, I was just having a little fun. That's the patriarchy. But let's go back to the moment when Louise shoots Harlan. Mm Mm-hmm. There's the moment when she pulls out the gun, she threatens him, Thelma gets away, and she's standing behind Louise. Louise and Thelma could easily have gotten away at that point. They used the gun for its purpose, for self-defense. And didn't actually fire it. Exactly. It's only after Harlan turns around and offends Louise once again and says, suck my cock, that she pulls that trigger and she shoots him. It could be said that she, in that moment, murders him. (sighs) I just don't see it that way at all. I also take issue with the word offend because for Louise to have been offended implies that she has the agency of that moment, that she could have chosen not to be offended. That wasn't the problem. That wasn't why she shot him. It wasn't because he offended her. It was because he learned nothing and he was going to go on and rape other women. He did not internalize this moment at all. And that filled Louise with such rage that she had to do something to stop his role in the patriarchy from continuing. Mm -hmm. She had to stop him. So that line where he says, I should have fucked her anyway and suck my cock, that wasn't him offending her. That was him continuing to embrace rape culture. Mm -hmm. And that's what she had to destroy and kill. So this idea that she didn't kill him out of self-defense... I just don't agree. I think it was still in self-defense. It was just in defense of something larger and more systemic and more, I guess, theoretical, but it wasn't because he had just tried to rape someone. Like, this is who this man was. This is what he was contributing to society. This is what he was contributing to women. It was in an active self-defense. Although that's one thing to say theoretically, which I agree with you, but legally, she committed a crime. Yep. So that's an interesting thing for the film to be saying about justified crime. I think Louise had a moment or could have had a moment if she had not been so overwhelmed with emotion Mm -hmm. where she could have thought, let's just go to the police right now. Mm -hmm. Let's let the police arrest this guy and take care of him. But 
the film is so careful. Louise very cryptically drops throughout the film these references to Texas. Mm-hmm. That something happened in Texas that makes her not want to return to Texas. And she doesn't want to go to the police. I'm led to believe that Louise was raped in Texas and she went through the proper system that she's supposed to go through. That she went to the police, either there was an investigation or there wasn't, or she appeared in court and the end result was that nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And she was completely let down by the system that nobody believed her Mm -hmm. and she just had to leave the state. So in the moment when she's seeing this happen again to her friend, she has no reason to believe that going back to that system will result in any kind of justice. So she takes justice into her own hands. I had a real moment when Thelma asks Louise, how do you know so much about the law? It was a real moment of privilege for me because I feel like a lot of women now know their rights about consent and Mm. rape and what's usable in court and what isn't. Or frankly, maybe I've just watched too many Law & Order SVU episodes. (laughs) But it was devastating that Thelma asked that because her asking that paints a picture that this is not available information. This is not known information about how rape interacts with the law. And Louise only knows this because she went through her own specific experience. And if she hadn't gone through that experience, who's to say she would know this either? This is information that's hidden from women. Because it would be impolite to discuss. It would be impolite in theory. And beyond Louise giving these few details about the technicalities of the law, she makes it very clear to Thelma that she will never discuss being raped in Texas, that she will die before she talks about it. And I thought, well, (laughs) men wonder why women don't come forward. Like, this is how women for so long have associated their rapes narrative Mm. as something that they will die before exposing. However, I thought it was really sensitive of Thelma to just sort of say, yeah, okay. Absolutely. And we never hear the details. Yeah. Because... That's Louise's prerogative. Yeah. If Louise had told her story in that moment, it would have been just for the satisfaction of the audience. Right. Totally. But on the flip side of that, and the film never directly comments on this, they just give this information and a detail-oriented audience member would pick up on it. But if you look at the visual map of their road trip, you and I were excited to talk about this. Ooh, and I put a reference map on our Instagram. Amazing. So go check it out. It's really helpful. Yeah, it's really fun. So if you look at the the map of their road trip, they pretty much drive west the entire time. They start from Arkansas, they make their way to Oklahoma, and then they make their way to Arizona. They never end up turning south towards Mexico. They stay driving west because Louise is trying to avoid Texas. And that is such a beautiful and heartbreaking metaphor that what ends up holding them back from escaping is their own past and trauma. Even when they're trying as hard as they can to rise above of their past, they still can't escape it. And it's sort of Louise's fatal flaw that in order to avoid Texas, avoid her past, that is what ends up getting them caught in the end. Right. They could have turned south towards Texas the moment after they shot Harlan. The amount of miles and time it would have taken to go from the silver bullet down to Mexico through Texas would have been less than the time the whole film ended up taking going from the silver bullet all the way to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. They drove further than they would have needed to, and they would have made it to Mexico. Yeah. None of this is to say those were choices they should have made. It's just incredibly compelling, and people should be aware that that's how much avoiding Texas meant to Louise. 
Yeah. We need to get out of this hole of just desperate sadness. (laughs) (laughs) So after they drive away, we see Hal, played by Harvey Keitel, Mm -hmm. who's the FBI agent working this case. And he speaks to the waitress that we saw earlier, talk to Harlan. And after that scene, Hal really takes off as arguably the third lead character. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about the waitress and the lack of supporting characters in this movie who are women. Mm-hmm. I find that very compelling. That this film is Thelma and Louise. It's this groundbreaking feminist film. And there's essentially only two women in the film. Meanwhile, there is this ensemble of supporting men. There's Harvey Keitel. There's Christopher McDonald. There's Brad Pitt. There's all of these men around. And I thought, well, Callie Corey is obviously more than capable of writing textured, nuanced women. So why are there only two women? And then I realized it's entirely intentional that this is a world of men. In a lot of movies, all the characters are incidentally men because male screenwriters get self-conscious when they write about women. But that's not what's happening in this movie. Every man is a man on purpose because they represent something very important about maleness. Thelma and Louise literally and figuratively don't see other women on their journey. It feels really natural and organic in the film. It makes sense that they would feel isolated, that it's just the two of them, that there are only two women in the world and everyone else is a sea of men essentially out to get them. So normally I resent that there aren't more supporting characters who are women, but in this movie, it seemed really focused and was the point. I think that's a really clever way to say that because I definitely noticed the wide breadth of versions of patriarchy in this film. Mm -hmm. You mean represented through different male characters? Yes. Mm -hmm. You have the obvious monsters, (laughs) Harlan, the truck driver, yeah, (laughs) and Daryl. Gotta love that truck driver. You have Jimmy. Good sweet Jimmy. Good sweet Jimmy. Who has really weird moments. Who, yeah. You think that he's this sort of sweet and gentle version of masculinity until he throws that table. Yeah. And then I'm like, nope, bye. (laughs) Yeah, he's got the rage inside him too when a woman doesn't do what he wants her to do. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I also got from Jimmy that, you know, they mentioned the reason why they're going on this vacation in the first place is because Louise is mad at her boyfriend. Uh I think the film implies that she had been waiting for him to propose Mm. and he wasn't ready for commitment. Mm. And only when he realizes that he might lose her forever does he step up and propose marriage to her. And at that point, it's too little too late. Yeah. You've got JD, and we'll get to JD in a minute. (laughs) And then we have Hal, who... Is lovely, but sort of useless in the end. (laughs) Well, I think his heart is sort of in the right place. Oh, yeah. Except that I'm bothered throughout the film how he only refers to them as girls. Yes, I noticed that too. At one point, towards the very end, he's shouting like, don't let them shoot these girls. Yeah. And then the other agent, I think his name is Max, Mm -hmm. like corrects him and he's like, these women are armed. Mm. It seems like everyone in this little squadron of FBI agents is taking these women seriously as criminals. And where Hal is is maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt in a positive way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is coming from the right place. Right, he's infantilizing them. 
Yeah, he's taking on this weird fatherly role with them without ever having met them. A, I agree with all of that, but B, I just, I can just hear the the rage of, quote, good men all uh-huh. over the world resenting this conversation and asking, well, what more could Hal have done? And I'm really asking you that too. Hal gave them the benefit of the doubt. He, in, he really investigated the circumstances under which this waitress mm-hmm. murdered this guy in a bar party parking lot. That already seems very bizarre. He was generous of spirit throughout his entire investigation. He really fought for them in a system that was doomed to fail them from the beginning. You know, when this movie is over, this is probably going to haunt Hal for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how Hal could have done this differently. Maybe it's more a commentary on the system. Yeah. That no matter what Hal did, Mm -hmm. this system was going to fail them. Yeah, and maybe the important lesson here for individual men who want to be allies is to look at a movie like this, maybe see themselves in Hal, and then finally, for the first time, concede that no matter how much they want to contribute and be allies, they are a part of a system that is broken. I don't think that Hal's trying to be an ally, though. I think he's trying to be a hero, and I think that's a really important distinction. Because, Mm. you know, even if they did accept his offer and went under his wing Mm -hmm. and let him protect them, those are still kind of empty promises. After that, they would have to appear in court with a judge and a jury. A community of people who did not believe them. Yeah, and they could still end up in prison. Right. What led to their demise was beyond Hal's responsibility. It was this whole system in place that led to failing them. I also feel like what in Thelma and Louise's experience has led them to believe that a man like Hal, who's charming and friendly and kind to them, Mm -hmm. actually has good intentions. Amen. And that's not Hal's fault, but he has to concede that that's the system in which he's working. Mm -hmm. You can't fix a problem until you name it. Maybe that's the one thing that Hal could have done that he didn't do is he didn't name it. He didn't name the problem. He didn't say that these girls were doomed from the beginning because of all of these things that, yes, are bigger than me, but that I've never been conscious of until this moment on this case. Mm. Yeah, he could have named it. So they're driving away. And now this is a real road trip movie because they had a quick destination at first, but now they're just driving indefinitely. Yeah. (laughs) So the role of the car is a lot bigger. Also, convertibles are so much better for road trip movies because you can actually see them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as opposed to having the camera like deep inside the car. Although Little Miss Sunshine did that beautifully. Like the claustrophobia of that car actually helped the movie. It made it feel more intense. But I love all the long shots of them driving in the car. When they're singing and when that plane flies right by them, Mm. that was such a striking shot because even though that plane itself wasn't actually looking for them, it gives you the idea that someone is lurking and that finding them eventually and catching them is going to be imminent Mm. and that they could get caught at any minute. Meanwhile, they're singing a song on the radio and they yet haven't come to terms with where this is all going to end. And then they come across a grifter on the side of the road. Oh my god. Baby Brad Pitt. <laughs> um, I just don't objectify every single man we talk about on this podcast. That's all. This was like his breakout role. Yeah. He's, to me, subjectively, so absurdly attractive in this movie that it's almost distracting. But I just wouldn't trust him. Girls, don't let him in the car. <laughs> 
He's clearly out to rob you. Louise doesn't trust him. Louise doesn't trust anyone. Yeah. Except for Thelma. And that's really interesting character development. That is she just really good at picking up on these creepy men like Harlan and JD? Or more heartbreakingly than that, does she just not trust any men? Has she been trained not to? Right. Like, I wonder how much she can pick up on the scent of men like Harlan and JD. Like, can she see them specifically as bad guys? Or does she just assume all men are bad guys? It sort of makes you wonder whose perspective is more tragic. Right. No, I don't know which one is the answer. And both choices from Callie Corey would be incredibly interesting. She seems to trust Jimmy. Mm -hmm. She doesn't assume the worst of Jimmy. That's true. But also Thelma has the opposite. She almost has a naive trust of men. Yeah. She, for whatever reason, trusted whatever show Daryl must have put on for her to get her to marry him. Yeah. They dated for four years in high school? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, In case you missed that, listeners, that was Sam going... (laughs) That was me with my hands in the air. (laughs) She trusted Harlan. Yep. She wanted to go to the police. Mm Mm-hmm. She trusts JD, mm-hmm. and all of those experiences would suggest that she was wrong for trusting those people. And when we get into her arc, we'll unpack that of mm-hmm. how much of that trust was naive and foolish, and how much was it the core of her beautiful character. Yeah. That women shouldn't have to not trust people. Back to JD. My absolute favorite moment in the movie is when Louise has already said, we're not letting JD in the car. And then they run into him later on the (laughs) road at a different point. And Thelma whimpers like a puppy in the car. And then Louise is like, all right, fine, we'll let him in. And Thelma sticks out her tongue and starts panting like a dog. You do not see moments like that in movies. No matter how common and obvious they are in real life, you do not get clever writing like that for women ever. Mm-hmm. Ugh, Callie Corey! Well, who knows? Right, that could have been Gina Davis in yeah. the moment. Mm-hmm. That could have been Ridley Scott saying, do something cute. Do something like cute and, and womanly in that moment <laughs> about JD, objectifying JD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, whatever circumstances led to that kind of hilarious honesty, Mm -hmm. I so appreciate. Yeah. You and I do shit like that all the time, and we never see those clever little moments in movies. Mm -hmm. I will attribute to Callie Curry, though, the adorable line, did you see his butt? (laughs) (laughs) Daryl doesn't have a cute butt. I wonder if that's like the first time that a man's cute butt has ever been referenced in a movie. (laughs) It's possible. That's funny. Another fabulous moment that's the intersection of all these things we've been talking about. It's the beautiful cinematography of shooting the roads. It's JD being very cute and charming and having all these very remarkable supporting characters. And the brilliant cleverness of the dialogue. After Louise drives into the dust to avoid the cops, seeing them on the road, JD says, y'all have too many parking tickets. I don't think I really heard that line the first time, (laughs) that he's implying you guys in trouble, but he doesn't actually give them the credit that it could be something really serious. You know, do you think his mind even goes there? What do you think of that moment? Yes, y'all have too many parking tickets. I don't know. 
Because he seems, like, pleasantly surprised later on when he finds out that they were actually running from the Right, that's what I mean. I don't think it really occurs to him that these are actual fugitives. No. He's just messing with them. He's just teasing them a little Mm -hmm. bit. So that, that moment where they're actually saving their lives and the men are teasing them about it because they're actually underestimating these women is all wrapped up in this one moment. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that actual shot that we're talking about is so beautiful. So JD all of a sudden represents a whole new facet of patriarchy in this film. (laughs) For one, he is kind of a clever subversion of the gold digger trope. Hear me out. Okay. He's younger than Thelma. Mm -hmm. He's beautiful and charming. Mm -hmm. He seduces her with his good looks in order to run off with her money. So all of that to me is a subversion of the kind of role that a woman might normally play Hmm. in a road film like this. That's really interesting. It's funny you use the phrase gold digger because when I think of gold digger, I think of a woman who marries a man, Uh stays with him, waits till he dies and then inherits his money. But what you're describing is a really common trope that a woman would play, like a woman that the man meets on the side of the road Mm -hmm. is really beautiful and sexy. They have a- innocent. And seems innocent, seems like the girl next door, and then runs off and reveals herself to be the manipulative bitch that we all should have known that she was the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. That's the role JD is playing. Uh Uh-huh. It's quite interesting. And on top of that, he's really sweet to her, and God, does she need someone to be sweet to her sometimes. Well, that's the other part, because the other facet of his character is he's like the classic (laughs) fuckboy. Now, I've been, unfortunately, I'm too old and unhip, and I've been in a relationship for too long. I know this is a phrase people use. Tell me what a fuckboy is. Okay, I'm ready. I haven't been single in a while. Tell me what a fuckboy is. Okay, a fuckboy could have many meanings. For one, it could just mean, you know, the guy in your social circle who everyone's aware of as like, you could call this guy for a good time. Oh. He is a sexually available boy who doesn't really care for commitment in any way. Oh, I see. Great. Well, as long as there's consent all around, I think that's great. Well, that's one description of the (laughs) fuckboy. The alternative description of the fuckboy is a boy who has a game that he plays to charm women into bed with him. Oh, I see. And then weasel his way out of the situation once he's had sex with them. Oh, I knew a lot of fuckboys at Michigan. (laughs) Right? Yes. (laughs) And then the third version is the boy who is that second version of the fuckboy, but is completely unaware of it. Oh. Who thinks that he's romantic, when in actuality, he's just, you know, like, getting his rocks off and then fleeing. That third category, those are the boys that I want to speak to. (laughs) Those are the boys that need the lesson. The first two, they're fine, there's consent, there's awareness, whatever. That third category, those are the boys that need to learn. (laughs) Anyway, JD represents the classic fuckboy. Charming, adorable, great in the sack, and then fucks you over the next day. Wow. What a great lesson, Sam. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And what's so brilliant about this little scene that JD and Thelma share in the motel room is that while he's explaining to her his strategy of robbery, Mm -hmm. that he sits back, he watches his target, he waits to make his move, (laughs) 
And then armed robbery doesn't have to be an unpleasant experience. (laughs) He's saying these lines as he's actively preparing to rob Thelma. He's talking about her. Yeah. I'll give her a good time and then I'll steal her money. Exactly. so funny. And she's totally falling for it. Yeah. She basically saying, here, take my money, darling. Mm Mm-hmm. But you know what? This is a really important moment for Thelma. It is. Before we get into that, I want to give one example I noticed of these fuckboy strategies you're talking about. Uh I found it so funny. When he knocks on the door to Thelma's motel room, he's getting rained on, right? Mm -hmm. And then he steps closer to her as they're talking. And then suddenly he's not being rained on. Do you know what that means? That means there's a cover to this motel floor near her door that he intentionally wasn't standing under so he could be rained on to make himself seem more vulnerable. (laughs) He was avoiding the shelter to stand in the rain to be like, oh, darling, I need to come in. And then when he steps closer, he's out of the rain. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. Wow, that's so true. (laughs) Because he does. He looks like this vulnerable, adorable little puppy dog. In the rain. Standing outside her door. He literally didn't have to be standing in the rain. There was a cover (laughs) to that floor. (laughs) And the very sweet way that he says, Miss Thelma. (laughs) Come on. Uh, I bet he's practiced that a lot. Oh, yeah. I bet there have been a lot of Miss Thelmas in his life. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. (laughs) You directed a play in college about a man who was very charming in very similar ways to JD. Mm. And it was initially a two-person play between this con artist and the woman that he was seducing and robbing. But you, so brilliantly, gave the production an ensemble full of women who we as the audience were supposed to believe were his past victims. And I found that so striking that it was so dramaturgically earned. And there obviously wouldn't have been any space for something like that in this movie, but I do wonder about all the women that JD seduced and robbed and fled from. Let's have a moment for them. Mm -hmm. They don't get their own movie. (laughs) Oh my God. The moment when he removes her wedding band. So clever. So clever. So clever. Because for one, it's this sexy move like, forget about your husband for one night. On the other, like, does he steal that wedding band? (laughs) (laughs) He's just surveying the room for what's expensive that he can steal later. It's so brilliant. (laughs) And obviously, JD's a fuckboy. We don't like JD. He ruins them. (laughs) But I'm so grateful that she was inspired by him. And he taught her something valuable about confidence and playing it cool and not giving a fuck. She would not have been able to rob that store so confidently and develop this new sense of self and pride if she hadn't met JD. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only met him, but she has gratifying, satisfactory sex for the first time in her life. Yeah. The way their sex scene is shot, particularly, it is all for her. Mm. It is all about her pleasure. Yeah. And that's part of JD's game, for sure. Right. (laughs) But that still doesn't mean that it's not an important moment in Thelma's journey. Yeah, of course. The way that she comes to breakfast the next morning, (laughs) like... Her hair is tussled. She looks like she's taking crazy pills. (laughs) But also, 
She's wearing pants for the first time in the movie. Oh, I didn't realize that. She's wearing pants and she's wearing JD's shirt. Yeah. She's dressing more masculine. She's letting go of this commitment to femininity that for so long she had felt beholden to. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I am so obsessed with the parallel in this movie between this messy, sexy affair in one room and then this mature, grounded, sad, real relationship in the other room. Mm -hmm. And as the movie was cutting back and forth shots of one couple versus another couple, I thought this is everything women deserve. They deserve both. They deserve either. They deserve whatever kind of relationship they want. Mm -hmm. And I think that sequence would have been less satisfying if we didn't see both of these relationships. Wow, what a good point. Yeah. Because some moments in your life, some partners you have is a JD moment and some are a Jimmy moment. And if we're lucky enough, a full relationship has both. Mm -hmm. So I love that, that that whole sequence makes up one full experience. That Louise and Jimmy were just talking all night. And really connecting and understanding each other as human beings. Mm -hmm. And then in the other room, they got this crazy messy thing going on. <laughs> it's such a lovely moment when Louise asks Jimmy what color her eyes and he answers because through being with Louise he's grown and he's learned and he's become a better man and then especially the next morning when they're saying goodbye in the diner it's so clear that they're never going to see each other again they both know this mm -hmm. and they don't have the emotional faculties to express it oh it's really sad it's heartbreaking because it seems like Jimmy's finally become the man that Louise has been waiting for him to be absolutely and now it's just too late yeah and then JD the fuckboy throws another wrench in this big old barrel of plot twists. Mm -hmm. He steals their money. And now they can't do what they need to do. Well, this is great because this is the midway point of the movie. And it marks a really important shift in both Thelma and Louise's characters. Yeah. After this night, after the money gets stolen, Louise, who up until this point has been the badass bitch in charge. Mm-hmm. She finally loses it. Yeah, she breaks down. And Thelma, who now has had this really fulfilling evening, mm -hmm. has finally found her self-confidence. Mm. She steps up and she takes the leadership position for yeah. the first time. It's amazing. And so I'd really like to take a moment now and discuss the individual character arcs of Louise and Thelma. Amazing. When this film starts, we've already said that we're like very aware of the dynamic of their friendship, that they are best, best, best friends, but it seems like Louise is the dominant force in the friendship. Mm -hmm. Louise is the organized one, the bossy one, the one in control. Thelma is the meek one, the nervous one, the flighty one. And Thelma, who at the beginning is almost like helpless in the way that she needs Louise to take care of her. Absolutely. You have that moment where she loses $20 yeah. out of the car window. <laughs> A third of the money they have. Yeah. To see her arc from beginning to end. Yeah. That she really steps up. Mm-hmm. And she takes JD's script and goes into <laughs> that store. Yeah. And the moment when she comes running out of the store and the sunlight is just like gleaming <laughs> and she just looks brilliant and happy, like exuberant. There is this shift. Yeah. That moment happens right after Louise sees the two old biddies mm. in the window. Yeah. She sees a version of her and Thelma in another life in a future life. You and I are obsessed with films across genre and we're always looking for comparisons of how one film might influence another. 
I see so much of Thelma and Louise in the relationship dynamic between Romy and Michelle that oh, we yeah. talked about in the Best Friends episode. The way that their dynamic starts out and then how it's subverted halfway through the film and how they both end up as fundamentally different people individually and as a team by the end of the film. Romy and Michelle absolutely mirrors this movie. And I think that's really lovely. Yeah. And both are road trip movies. It definitely does feel like an homage to Thelma and Louise. Totally. But going back to what inspires their arc, not only do these two characters interact so beautifully with the world around them, you know, this like us versus them idea, but I also think there's another dynamic that's so important, which is how Thelma directly influences Louise and how Louise directly influences Thelma. Yeah. Thelma needed Louise to understand how to have a forward motion, like a drive for life. Thelma's life was pretty stoic. She was fine staying in one place, both literally and figuratively. And Louise was her push. She's literally the one driving to Mexico. And Thelma's sort of tagging along until she makes the active choice to go with her. So that's the way Louise influences Thelma. But I think the subtler and more beautiful arc is what Thelma gives Louise. Louise was cold. She was jaded. She didn't trust anybody. She shut herself off from the world. Mm -hmm. And by having her best friend, who she loves on this trip with her Louise realized that there's something in life worth fighting for and worth not giving up for and that there's still space in Louise's heart for love. I don't know if anyone else could have given Louise that. She sort of opens herself up to love because of Thelma. Jimmy wasn't going to give her that. And I think both of them could have only grown fundamentally because of each other, not just because of their circumstances. Yeah. The sort of obvious lesson from the film is that what they're getting out of this road trip, out of this escape, is this freedom that they've never had access to. Yeah. I've never traveled before. I always wanted to, but I never got the opportunity. Thelma at one point says, I've never felt so awake. Yeah. God, that line. And they always return to this idea of, you know, we could still turn back now. We could still turn ourselves in now. And then they always subvert it because they know deep down that our old life was prison. Yeah. We were already in prison. Yeah. And no matter what, what lies ahead, as long as it's within our own agency, mm-hmm. is the better option. Absolutely. We're jumping to the end, though. We, I know. We got I know, fun shit to do in the meantime. One moment that, I don't know if this is weird to say, but was kind of triggering to moments of tension that you and I have had (laughs) when it's revealed that Thelma told JD about Mexico Mm. and Louise really goes after her for it. Yeah. I was so conflicted in that moment because one of my biggest personality flaws, personality traits, who's to say, is that I'm very hard on people. I hold people to what I think is a fair high standard, but what other people would say is maybe an impossible standard. And I had a real moment of clarity in my own personality and in your and my relationship because I was thinking, Louise, Thelma has never been in this situation before. Mm. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's never been out of the house before. Like, give her some slack. Yes, there was an obvious lack of common sense in telling JD about Mexico, but she was excited to talk to her new boyfriend about something that was on her mind. You know, like Louise is frustrated that she can't control Thelma to have her be more like Louise 
And frankly, I can really empathize with that, but that's not how life works. So that was a nice moment for me to be like, well, I would probably do the same thing Louise is doing right now, but I also see Thelma's side too, that she is absolutely in over her head and doesn't know how to shut her mouth because that's not her personality. So that was interesting. That's really admirable. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that in our relationship, I'm the (laughs) Thelma and you're the Louise. Totally. Fine with me. But related to their character arcs, I do think that there is a wonderful, you know, release of that need for control in Louise. Yeah. That in the first half of the film, she almost berates Thelma as much as Daryl does. Mm, totally. And she really learns to let go of that. I think that happens in the motel room. I don't think she just lets go of wanting to control Thelma. I think she lets go of wanting to control anything. Yeah. She sort of hits rock bottom. Yeah. And says, my life is falling out from under me. She loses her life savings. Yeah. And the first time I saw it, I kept thinking of her degrading, unsatisfying job at the restaurant. Like how many assholes she had to put up with, with shitty tips and sending their food back. How many years she had worked for that money. And in one moment, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And going back to the men, I love the moment when all the cops are at Daryl and Thelma's house. And one of the men says, be nice to Thelma. Women love that shit. And they all start laughing. And I realized this time they're all laughing because none of them know what they're doing or what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just laughing at like, well, maybe they love that. Who's to say? Ah, women. <laughs> <laughs> well, the follow-up to that scene is what is arguably the funniest moment of the movie when Thelma calls Daryl and he answers the <laughs> phone. He like obviously knows that this isn't gonna work. <laughs> and he's like, Thelma, hello. <laughs> When we saw it in that public park that one day, that was the moment that got the biggest laugh. Yeah, it's so silly. (laughs) It's also really hilarious that the last time Daryl saw Thelma, she was this ditzy housewife in a bathrobe. And now watching her on the security cam, she's robbing a store. It's incredible. He's like, what's happened to her in the last 48 hours? (laughs) That moment is satisfying to me on a deep, deep level. (laughs) But of course, like the joy of a road trip genre film like this are the obstacles and the challenges that they face along the way. Right. And in this film, it's this crime spree that they go on. (laughs) The first is robbing the convenience store. Yeah. Which itself is a magnificent scene. Yeah. The second is their encounter with the state trooper. Oh my God, he's a Nazi. First of all, amazing. (laughs) That whole scene is just a magnificent thing of beauty. Some of my favorite lines in the movie are in that scene. When Thelma goes, my husband wasn't sweet to me. Look how I turned out. Praise. (laughs) This movie gets zero credit for being hilarious. Oh my God. (laughs) And when when Louise shoots the radio (laughs) and Thelma's like, The police radio, Louise. (laughs) You know what I'm realizing talking this through? That all three of the major crime milestones you're talking about are all very funny. They're all very humorous. And I'm wondering why that is. Like, why are they funny? And then other moments of crime, like the murder, aren't funny. And I think it's because things are funny when they're surprising. A punchline is always funny because you didn't expect it. It subverts your expectations of how you thought the story was going to end. And I'm realizing sort of bittersweetly that these three moments are quite funny because you just don't expect these women to be doing
doing this. Hmm. That's the basis of the humor, is that two women holding a gun to a policeman's head and putting him in a trunk is just something you never thought you would see women doing. That's the humor. And I still think that's great. It's just kind of bittersweet. But I don't only think that it's humor. Uh Uh-huh. I feel as though these three moments are so joyfully empowering. Yeah, of course. That they're just having fun at this point. (laughs) Yes. It's that they're surprising themselves with how powerful they feel. Yeah. The way Louise looks at Thelma when Thelma pulls the gun on the cop. Yes. She's so admiring of her friend's (laughs) new energy. She's like, yes, I like this. (laughs) And when she asks the cop to trade sunglasses. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Just because she like wants new sunglasses. (laughs) Well, no, it's very specific. It's that they they are appropriating all of these different pieces of male clothing Mm, along the way. Totally. It starts with JD's shirt and then it's this cop's sunglasses. And then we'll see in the following scene, they take the truck driver's hat. Yeah. They keep taking their mementos from their their (laughs) moments of crime. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm personally obsessed with how Thelma and Louise's character transformations are reflected visually in their costume transformations. Oh my god, yes. Um, Looks so iconic. Incredibly iconic. They have so many looks that A, seem so intentional by an artist, like by a costume designer, but then on the other hand, seem so organic within the context of the movie. Yes. One of the things that always bothers me in movies that don't consciously think about the realistic way in which characters interact with their clothing Mm -hmm. is like, for example, in television, Mm -hmm. where the characters are wearing a different outfit every single episode and they never repeat a single item of clothing. (laughs) Like that is not how real people interact with their clothing. Sure. Like people have a limited amount of room in their closet to have the clothing that they have. That's so interesting. I've never thought of that before. You're right. That TV shows should have repeated costumes a couple of times a season. Yeah. Like I'm always like shocked when sometimes I go back and I watch like the Uh X-Files and Gillian Anderson has a different power suit every single episode. (laughs) There is no way that woman can afford that many expensive designer suits and have room for that many in her closet. And that's not even a show known for fashion. That's about aliens. Right. You think about shows like Friends or Buffy that were so influential for fashion Mm -hmm. and they never repeat clothing. Yeah. Wow. Opened my eyes. So this film is the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, They have like two costumes that they then do variations on the entire movie. Well, here's the thing. They start with Thelma packing all of that clothing into her suitcases. Mm -hmm. And she basically wears her one outfit that she was wearing the night of the silver bullet. Mm -hmm. And then she changed from that into her swimsuit and then was wearing the same skirt and her little jacket over the swimsuit Mm -hmm. the next day. And then after JD, Mm -hmm. she's wearing one pair of jeans, Louise's jacket, and his denim shirt. Yeah. And she basically leaves all of her other clothing behind. Mm. She does not ever open her suitcases. Wow. In a following scene, you see that they've torn the sleeves off of JD's shirt, and Louise is washing herself with them. Yeah. And she even rips up some strips and makes little necklaces out of the strips from JD's shirt. (laughs) 
And then finally, Thelma removes that denim shirt mm-hmm. because we're done with JD. <laughs> and she buys this t-shirt. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's wearing until the end of the film. Right. And it's this like motorcycle style t-shirt with a skull and a Confederate flag on it. Right. Which I certainly noticed. Yeah, that's a really interesting image to have in this film, Mm -hmm. which on one hand is Thelma taking on this very overt masculine object Mm -hmm. and making it her own. On the other hand, I think that this moment of her wearing the Confederate flag on her shirt is an example of how this film is unaware of intersectional feminism. Yeah, absolutely. That these Southern white women are reclaiming this Southern male symbol while ignoring the, of course, racist implications of that symbol. Right. I don't think they're embracing that racist part of it because I bet they're not even conscious of it. And that lack of awareness seems irresponsible. Yeah, I think so too. It is a small detail in the grand scheme of this entire movie, but it definitely stood out to me. I have one question for you, Samantha. Yes. Why is the gas explosion scene, A, not the most famous scene in the movie, Mm. and B, not one of the most famous scenes in like all of movies? Because I think if it was two men who did that, you know that every teenage boy would be obsessed with that scene, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's bonkers that the first time I saw this movie was the first time I was ever exposed to this. I was like, what? They explode a truck? This is crazy. God, that shot of them just like standing on the car (laughs) with their arms out, shooting the truck. That was the moment the first time watching through where I was like, my life just changed. Oh, wow. That's great. But also the reason why that scene is so particularly fantastic Mm -hmm. is because we've, we've led up to it so gracefully. Yeah. With these tiny inserted moments with the truck driver throughout the story. Yeah. And he is the worst. So gross. But how funny it is that he sort of rode along their journey parallel to them. Mm -hmm. That had they not gone through everything that they've gone through in the course of the film, Mm. it wouldn't have led up to that moment with him. Right. They would have just let him go. Right. He's sort of like a marker for where they are on their journey. Absolutely. The first time they pass him, they're not ready to shoot his truck. (laughs) Totally. You know, they still have to rob the store. Yeah. The second time they pass him, they're still not ready. They've got to have their moment with the cop first. (gasps) You're so right. Finally, the third time they pass him and he gives them his thing with his tongue. Yeah. And pointing to his lap. They're like, okay, we're ready to pull this motherfucker over. (laughs) It's time. Yeah. It's like that rule of three. (laughs) So good. I mean, as funny and amazing as that is, I think to unpack what you're saying even further, once they've accepted that so many bad things have happened, Mm -hmm. that this is going to end with prison or death, they're free to just do whatever they want. So as much as it's about being empowered to stand up to the man, it's also, you know, one of them even says this at one point, everything we've had to lose, we've lost anyway. Mm -hmm. They might have had the impulse to, you know, attack a guy like that in the beginning, but there was still something to lose that held them back. And now they're just sort of free to do whatever they want because they know this isn't going to end well. So that's also very bittersweet. But that's a really interesting point that at a certain point in this film, do you think that they both... Both know that they're not going to Mexico. Yeah. I think so too. I think they 
know earlier than we might want them to know. Mm. I think Louise knows pretty early. I do too. That moment when she trades all of her silver jewelry yeah. for a hat. Mm-hmm. I think there's a series of shots where it really hits both of them. And I think it's the long, quiet sequences of them driving mm-hmm. through the night and waking up watching the sunrise. Yeah. God, the shots are so beautiful. And, you know, they're they're trading driving. Thelma will drive for a few hours, then Louise will drive for a few hours. I think that's really when they know this isn't going to end well, and so they might as well enjoy the beauty surrounding them. Yeah. And that moment wouldn't have hit as deeply if it was a play or a novel. You had to see the sun going down and then the sun rising back up again in the morning and them surrounded by these beautiful mountains and these beautiful shots of the sky right that whole sequence is a really beautiful marriage between what was going on with them emotionally and the visual landscape surrounding them telling that story there is a moment while they're driving towards the end where they're talking about mexico they're envisioning their ideal life in mexico and we'll be drinking margaritas by the sea mamacita i'm so obsessed that Thelma's dream is simply to have a job right god (laughs) but the way that they're talking about all of it You could see, at least in Louise's eyes, that she's playing pretend. Yeah. So let's get into the big chase scene. (sighs) The big climactic chase scene and the ending. First of all, the car chase is magnificent. Yeah. It's so thrilling. It's like the best example of filmmaking, that you're so emotionally invested in something that is only being expressed visually. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a play, a lot of that moment would have to be expressed verbally. And just watching these cars in this giant dance could only be as satisfying as it is because it's a film. Mm -hmm. I have this theory about this movie, about the role of dust. Great. I love dust in this movie. (laughs) Dust is so interesting it is one of in my opinion the lead characters you can it's like what you said about tracking Thelma and Louise's arc through when the truck driver appears Mm -hmm. you can actually track this movie's stakes by the visual presence of dust so the movie starts and they're on concrete roads there's not that much dust as the film goes on the dust on the road becomes looser and looser until the end they are literally surrounded in a cloud of dust and you could barely see the car and what does dust always stand in for in literature death dust to dust. Death is getting nearer and nearer. The more present that dust is visually, the closer they are to their deaths. One of the first times we really notice the dust is when Thelma holds up the store, because that's one of the first times they're seeking out situations of death for the first time on their own terms. Mm-hmm. There's a really famous screenwriting book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. And oh, yeah. there's this structure and he goes into very detailed beats that every screenplay needs to hit. And one of them is called Bad Guys Move In. <laughs> it's literally called Bad Guys Move In. Yeah. And as I was watching this and all of the cop cars are growing in number and they're getting closer to the convertible. I was like, oh, the bad guys are moving in. Yeah. <laughs> It's just impeccable. It's like 10 minutes before the end of the movie, suddenly we've got the car chase. Yeah. But it's interesting you say bad guys move in because, you know, one of those striking shots is Hal coming up in the helicopter Mm -hmm. from inside the canyon. Yeah. And the way that shot is framed is like, he is the villain of this film. Mm. And at least from Thelma and Louise's perspective, maybe he is. Mm -hmm. He still thinks that he's helping them. Right. He still thinks that he's the hero of the story. Yeah. But at this point, he has absolutely nothing to offer them. Yeah. 
there's not even a reason for him to be there because the FBI agents have their mission. They're going to shoot these women down or they're going to take them in. Yeah. And they're going to go to prison for the rest of their lives. Mm. There's literally nothing that Hal could do to protect them anymore at this point, except he keeps insisting, (laughs) like, don't shoot these girls. Yeah. And here are these two women in a little car with their little handguns. They're surrounded by police, like dozens of policemen who are pointing rifles at them. There's a helicopter. It's a big shebang. All this for us? Exactly. (laughs) And they turn to each other and Thelma says, let's not get caught. Let's keep going. (laughs) I'm speechless. (laughs) I don't think you could have capped this movie in a more profound profoundly tragic and beautiful way they've learned so much about what it is to have integrity and agency and they've realized that that is more important than anything and these final shots of their faces that are closer up than we've had in the entire movie of their brilliant smiles and the sunlight is just beaming onto their faces Mm -hmm. there's no makeup their hair is wild they're like sunburned Yeah, and they've got tears in their eyes looking at each other with so much love and respect. Yeah. And that kiss that they share that's so intimate. Yeah. And they take the only option that is within their own agency. That allows them their integrity. Yeah. They could turn themselves in or they could be shot. And those would be playing the game. Those decisions would be putting themselves back into the power of men, of the patriarchy. Yeah, back in the hands of the people who've been oppressing them this entire time and playing by their rules. And they've learned at this point that they can't do that no matter what the cost is. And so Louise puts her foot on that gas and they keep going. And we freeze frame (laughs) with that car eternally suspended in midair. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that when they were doing focus screenings of this movie, if the car went a little too far down, people mm-hmm. didn't like it. If you didn't see them fly enough, people didn't like it. It was very important to know when to freeze frame the car in the air. Mm-hmm. I do dislike that they so quickly cut away. Cut away to like memories of their beautiful faces. You, know? <laughs> you wanted to linger a little bit more in the car. I would have loved for the credits to roll over that image mm. of the car in the air. Yeah. For us to have seen them fall into the canyon would be to imply that they've lost somehow mm-hmm. and that they have failed when really that moment suspended in the air implies a freedom and a liberation and an integrity that they were going after. Yeah. That was the point. That was why they did this. And I had mentioned to someone that we were doing this movie for the podcast and it was a man and he sort of shrugged and said, I just don't like movies that end in suicide, Mm -hmm. whether it's men or women. I just don't like people giving up like that. It just sort of ruins it. And I didn't know how to articulate how this movie is different when it comes to their suicide. Right. I remember after the first time I saw it, I went into school and I discussed it with one of my favorite English teachers Mm -hmm. and I was questioning the ending. Mm -hmm. I knew it empowered me, but I didn't exactly know why and she said who's to say that they don't fly away at the end (laughs) 
You know, like what a kooky answer, but yeah, who's to say? I mean, I don't believe they flew away at the end. I definitely believe that they die, but I think that to reduce choosing death as a failure is to undermine the power of this movie. Mm -hmm. If you have such privilege in the world that you cannot empathize with these women having no other choice, if you really can't understand that, then you need to watch this movie again. I think it is a double meaning though. Mm -hmm. in that ending. Because number one, suicide is a massive tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it is a tragedy that that was their only option. Absolutely. So that's one statement it's making. Mm -hmm. The other is that they were taking their lives into their own hands. And what saddens me is people not appreciating that it was truly their only option to maintain their integrity. Mm -hmm. And if you think that maybe they had other choices... Maybe you haven't given enough empathy to these women's circumstances. And of course, the controversy when the movie came out that it was a really unpopular ending. But the film stands the test of time because it was so bold and because it was so brave and so loyal to the necessities of the story. Thelma and Louise! We made it to the end. We made it to the Grand Canyon. Oh my god, we made it to the end of season one. Wow, we ended season one at the Grand Canyon with Thelma and Louise driving over. That's the end of our first season. Well, here's the thing. Let's keep going means that we will be (laughs) back. We'll be back. In our off season, (laughs) we'll still be working really hard on this podcast, Mm -hmm. discovering more films to include... And we want your continued participation. We'll still be on Instagram. We'll still be on Twitter and Facebook. We always want your recommendations because now's the time that we're going to go through them and watch them. Let's keep going refers to it being your turn now to be a part of making this podcast with us. Yeah. And giving us movies to watch that you're excited for us to talk about. So to jumpstart that process, we've got a special listener voicemail to share with you. Oh, amazing. And this comes from Elizabeth. Not me. Hi, this is Elizabeth, and I am from Brooklyn, New York. Um, So I am sending you a message because I both love your podcast. It's amazing. And I had a question about a certain film I had watched. I can't get it out of my mind, and I really want someone with a better film knowledge than I have to do an analysis on it because I can't stop thinking about it. It's called Lady Macbeth, and it's this incredible, very quiet film slow paced and yet at the same time it crescendos in a way that's very naturalistic and at the center it has this female character who is incredibly flawed and completely unforgivable in her actions and yet completely understandable and she makes these decisions all along the film that are completely surprising not because they are untruthful to the character but because I realize that I have rarely if ever seen a woman respond in that way on film Again, not outside of the normal realm of responses for a person, but not within the realm of responses of what is expected for a female on camera. And also at the end of it, there are these decisions that are made 
that I do not know if I've ever really believed as much on screen, the, the characters, the psychological ramifications of those decisions. Uh, if you've seen this film before, I think you know what I'm talking about. And if not, then get ready, I guess. Um, or maybe I'm overhyping this. I have no idea. I need some help. Please let me know if it's as good as I think it is and um, what you guys think, because I really want to know why, how it is constructed or what makes it so effective to me personally. So thanks very much and have a great day. This is exactly what we want, y'all. Thank you, Elizabeth. I am so pumped now to watch this movie, Lady Macbeth, because I want to know what the hell she's talking about. What are these decisions at the end? Why did this movie <laughs> stay in her mind? And why can't she forget about it? You and I are very emotionally contagious people. Our moods are contagious. Mm -hmm. When someone else is excited about something, I get excited about it. When you get excited, I get excited. When I get excited, you get excited. Yeah. The fact that Elizabeth is excited makes me excited. And now I, I want to watch the movie and talk about it. I know. Neither of us have seen it. Yeah. So it's going right at the top of our watch list. Yeah. But another thing I'll say is I feel like that is the best kind of feeling that you can have after watching a movie. The feeling of my world has been rocked by this and I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah, amazing. Because if the film answers that question for you in an obvious way, mm. I think that's a weakness. Oh, that's interesting. That it's too simplistic, you mean? Mm -hmm. That it gives more answers than it asks. Yeah. Which is our new phrase that we've said a couple of times now in episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems that this film left Elizabeth with questions, but not with answers. And that's why she can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. I think that's excellent. This also makes me want to go into a little more detail for our listeners of how we screen movies and oh. how we decide whether or not something is going to be added to our archives of sure. the greatest films about women. Mm -hmm. We often talk about the reasons why a film does qualify as feminist and as good, you know. Oh, but we seldom talk about what disqualifies a movie. That's really interesting. It never occurred to me to bring that up, actually. <laughs> yeah, we should disclaim that we love being positive, but we've rejected hundreds of movies from this <laughs> podcast that were in consideration that people recommended or movies that you and I liked from our past that featured women. We've rejected a hell of a lot more movies than mm -hmm. are on our standby list. Movies that we've already approved and are like confirmed to be programmed into an episode, we have about 30, and then we have a couple of hundred more to watch. Mm-hmm. And then a couple hundred more that we've already rejected. Yeah. And one of our goals of the podcast has always been that we weren't going to dwell on the negative. Very important. We never really saw it as a useful conversation for us to bash movies, to say why a movie is not good or not feminist. If you and I are going to be presumptuous with our opinions, I'd much rather be presumptuous with saying why something is good and why we like it and why people should watch it rather than being presumptuous with why something doesn't work. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. So I don't want to go into specifics, but I would like to, you know, let the listener in on some reasons why we might reject a movie. Okay. For example, our first rubric, of course, is, is the lead character a woman? <laughs> is there a secondary character who's a woman? And is the film from her perspective? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of films that have fit that rubric, and yet there's still something that keeps us from wanting to promote it as a feminist film. Mm -hmm. I can think of one example where there was a marriage late in the film that made it feel as though the female character's journey had ended and then 
her journey as a couple began. Which really made her arc as a woman take a back seat mm-hmm. and sort of become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. There was another film that we watched that was seriously about the women at the center of the story, but it turned out cared more about the men's journeys as they related to the women. That the women had less of a character arc than the men did. Right, even when the men were supporting characters. Mm-hmm. And it was just simply because it was written by a man who maybe didn't know how to give women those arcs that he more naturally knew how to give men. Mm-hmm. I had actually mentioned this earlier that Thelma and Louise doesn't do this, but I think we've come across a lot of films that in trying to showcase the struggles of women actually sort of romanticize mm-hmm. and glorify rape and glorify poverty and glorify racism. Yeah, the, it maybe not glorify, but it romanticizes these struggles of like, oh, look at her. She's working so hard to overcome her adversity. And it still feels really condescending and undermining mm-hmm. and dismissive, even though the film had really good intentions of right. trying to give space for this woman's struggles. So that, frankly, might be the most common reason we've rejected movies, is that it's still too much from the male gaze. I think often something that accompanies that issue is that the camera, you'll find, is really obsessed with how beautiful the actresses are. Absolutely. Which, unless it is dramaturgically relevant to her character, is pretty much always undermining to the film. Absolutely. I've also often rejected films that I felt reflected a female character who was a pillar of strength from Mm. beginning to end. Yep. Who didn't have an arc, who didn't have any change, who didn't learn from her mistakes and grow from them. Yeah. Those movies, in my mind, have always been demeaning to a woman's humanity. Totally. I rejected another movie because a Latina character was played by a white woman. Amen. That happens all the time. And then beyond just feminism, I think we've also worked really hard to focus on movies that not only stood up as important, relevant feminist content, but actually good, well-structured movies. I'm allergic to cheesy music. Mm -hmm. I'm allergic to cliche dialogue. We've rejected movies because the structure of the film felt all over the place, Mm -hmm. that it was unfocused. We're saying all this not just to indulge in our own choices, but specifically so you as the listeners know that when you submit movies, which we are so excited to hear about, this is a lot of what's going on in our brain when we're choosing these movies. And that might be really interesting for you to reevaluate some of your favorite movies. Why is this my favorite movie? What do I get out of it? Am I ignoring overtly sexist overtones of this movie because I subjectively love it? That happens to me all the time. That I love a movie, I've grown up with it, and then at a certain point I have to really come to terms with the fact that not only is it not feminist, it is harmful to women. And by me loving it anyway, I'm contributing to the patriarchy. And that's been really hard. I've had to kill a lot of darlings. So anyway, that's just some of our thoughts about season two. But that's also our sort of long version of saying, you know, this is a very structured environment that we've created here, but you guys have all the ability in the world to analyze for yourself why films work and why they don't. And why a movie that your dad and your brother love, but that's always made you uncomfortable, maybe you can use this space to 
to articulate why it makes you uncomfortable and tell them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even why a movie that you've always loved that maybe you've been told your whole life is stupid or mm. irrelevant, that you have the right to love that movie. Amen. Hashtag Uptown Girls. Yeah, <laughs> because you probably know better. Yeah. So Elizabeth from Brooklyn, not the Elizabeth across the table from me, (laughs) thank you so much for your recommendation. Yes. We will give it a watch. And in the meantime, I hope that you investigate some of these questions for yourself. Yeah. So looking back on our first season... First of all, I'm really proud. Yeah. I think we can fairly say that, like, we created something that we're proud of. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel like you want to reflect on from our first season? I feel like I've learned something about storytelling in every episode. Mm -hmm. Even listening back for editing, I'm like, oh, I don't remember us talking about that. That's really interesting. (laughs) It's a great way to get to know the films that I already loved. You know, I think about in our first episode that had movies, I'm really grateful for the chance to have articulated why 13 is so great. Mm -hmm. That was the first big moment for me to be like, oh, I can really learn from this. That I was able to empower myself with language as to why 13 is such a great movie. So that's been nice. Mm -hmm. What about you? I really enjoy looking at our list. Mm -hmm. Just seeing on our website (laughs) the pictures one on top of the other Mm -hmm. of women in fabulous roles. Yeah, totally. And complicated relationships between women. Are there any movies or conversations we've had on the podcast about those movies that stick out to you as the VIPs or the ones that really, really resonated months later? Mm, To tell you the truth, I think about our sports episode a lot. Oh, cool. For love of the game. Uh Because it gave me this appreciation for athletes and athletics that I don't think I had before. That's amazing. I look at sports now, especially sports for women, Mm -hmm. with a lot more admiration and respect. That's awesome. I think our tradition episode has consistently given me a lot to think about, about my own relationship with tradition and Mm -hmm. culture. Totally. I'm more sure than ever that The Handmaiden is the greatest movie ever made. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. What about you? Subjectively, I just really love our Best Friends episode. Yeah. I think those three together really gave me a lot to think about. Tangerine, Roman, Michelle, and Soulmate. I think they complemented each other really well. And now whenever I feel the urge to watch one of those movies, I think of them sort of as a trio now. Like I I feel compelled to watch the other two. (laughs) It's fresh on my mind because we just recorded it. But our Girls Will Be Boys episode, I think will really stay with me because it was one of the first times in the podcast where I got to be more contemplative and maybe vulnerable about my own gender identity and gender expression. And those three movies really give you with space to feel that way Mm -hmm. and go off in any sort of direction you want of how to interpret them. I am obsessed with our Halloween series. You were incredibly educational in the witch episode, (laughs) the history of witchcraft. And I'm just obsessed with the horror movies. I'm so obsessed with the Babadook still. I'm so obsessed with that movie because of this relationship between form and content, between themes and style. But I think at the end of the day, my favorite movie that I've watched for the podcast were probably Tangerine and The Breadwinner. And also absolutely The Fits. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe all of them. <laughs> what are your some of your favorite movies that you've watched for the podcast? Yeah, I have to say most of the films that we talk about are movies that I had already seen. Oh, great. Because I'm just a nerd with no life, I guess. <laughs> 
but a couple that I, you know, went searching for mm. because of the podcast were Persepolis, mm-hmm. Mavian Rose, and The Fits. Mm. Yeah, I didn't mention this in our conversation about Mavian Rose, but I have loved Mavian Rose since I was a kid. So mm-hmm. it was really lovely to return to it now as an adult in a different context. Yeah. What were some of your favorite movies that you learned how to articulate why you love them? That you had a different relationship to when you were a kid or a teenager that now watching in the context of the podcast means more to you now. I think maybe movies like Bring It On Mm. and The Devil Wears Prada (laughs) and The Craft. Yeah. You know, some of these movies that we talk about that we may have never expected we would ever discuss in an academic setting. Right. Are truly works of art just like anything else. Yeah. I was going to say The Craft as well. Mm -hmm. I found myself in a conversation with someone a few months ago and I had mentioned that we had done The Craft on the podcast and he said, oh, really? The Craft? Right. And it was so easy to slip into that mode of integrity that we were just talking about with Thelma and Louise. And I just shot right back. Yeah, The Craft, it's actually incredible. And if you listen to the episode, we really break down why it's incredible Mm -hmm. and the way that it plays with structure and expectations of power. Like I didn't miss a beat. I went straight into it defending The Craft. (laughs) So that was nice. (laughs) The last thing I'll say is... I know some of our listeners skip around on the podcast. Sure. You know, they'll listen to episode five and then they'll listen to episode 11. Or they'll listen to the conversations of the movies they've seen and not right. the ones they haven't seen. Yeah. In the off season, <laughs> this podcast will live here. Mm-hmm. It will live here forever. This is the internet. Nothing dies on the internet. As far as we know yet in 2019. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Consider using our podcast as your watch list Mm. moving forward. Yeah. You know, maybe you do have a night with your significant other or your friends or your family when you're just like wondering about what I should watch. And And maybe you don't want to watch Back to the Future for the 50th time. Yeah, right. (laughs) Consider using this list as a reference. And then come back to us and we'll talk about it. It's bittersweet for me that the first season is ending... Because as many incredible films as it is that we've talked about, we have a lot more films that you and I have been just as excited to talk about as the movies we've already had episodes for. I know. When you approached me at this point, like a year and a half ago about this podcast, I made a quick little short list of like my fantasy movies that we talked about. Half of them have since been rejected by you or by me, which is totally (laughs) fair because that's what growing up is about. But one of the few films that has stuck from day one that we haven't talked about yet is Girl Interrupted. Yes. So I'm ready. I'm ready at some point Mm -hmm. to talk about Girl Interrupted. (laughs) What about you? I'm dying to discuss Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yes, me too. Totally (laughs) me too. Both of us are dying for it. And like Thelma and Louise, it has been very hard to find a theme appropriate for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because it's so dynamic. Yeah. And it's so singular. Yeah. So all of this is to say, let's keep going. Let's keep going. We're not going anywhere. It's not goodbye. It's see you later. See you later. Bye. Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop and email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. 
Sam, the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn. I just don't want to skip over the image of a man with an American flag on his hat and pins of naked women on it, on his knees with a fire behind him, shouting, You bitches! <laughs> Amen. That's all. <laughs> <laughs>